So please turn with me, if you don't mind, to Psalm 1. Sad, fearful, depressed, 
angry, lonely, whatever the case may be. That catches all of us. I'm thankful for God's word in its entirety. One of the things that I'm most thankful for is that he gave us a voice in his scriptures. Up here at the joy. Up here at the frustration and anger with people and with him. To lament whenever we are broken and destitute. To cry out whenever we are depressed. The Psalms give a voice to the whole person. In other words, we are people who struggle body and soul. And the Psalms give us a voice. Sometimes when we can't find our own, we can use David's or Moses or Asaph, or others, and we have something to say when we don't know what else to say. Or we can find that, that these men, these people of God, knew how to talk to God through their periods of elation, through their periods of frustration, through the heights of joy and through the depths of depression. Psalm 111 is a special psalm because it calls us to be praise, who deliberately give thanks, and again, even more fundamentally, have reason to give thanks. So I want us to connect today, very simply, looking through the works of God, and how those works of God, throughout history and on our behalf, should lead us to be people of thanks. So today we are going to have a Thanksgiving meditation. I'm going to put in front of you the basic structure of this psalm. We're going to read it together. So the psalmist begins in verses 1 and 2 by saying that the covenant assembly, God's people, the collection of God's people in the Old Testament, we are the collection of the people now post-Old Testament as people who, who revel in the glories of the new covenant. So like Israel, we are a covenant assembly. A covenant assembly is to praise and thank God in whom they trust. That's what verses 1 and 2 teach us. Verses 3 through 9, which is the main body of the psalm, I indented that if you notice on the screen, that's purposeful. God is worthy of the covenant assembly's trust because he takes care of it. So notice in verses 1 and 2, he calls them to be thankful people who trust, but then in verses 3 through 9, he gives them the basis of God is worthy of the covenant and least trust because he takes care of them. And then verse 10, he comes back out. It's almost like verses 1 and 2 form one bookend in the psalm, and verse 10 forms the other bookend that holds verses 3 through 9 in. Basically, he comes back to some of the same ideas he talks about in verses 1 and 2, and he says, the covenant assembly is to pursue all inspired worship of God who cares for them. Again, going back to 7 and verses 1 and 2. So, Trust God and thank Him. Verse 1. Verses 3 through 9, here's why. Then, after considering those things, after meditating on those things, you, you come back outward and you say, I should be in awe of this God. I should worship Him and be thankful. So, let's read together Psalm 111. I'm going to do something a little different today that hinted at in the past. And that is traditionally in churches like ours, when the person who is leading worship, whoever that might be, uh, 
It says at the beginning of the song, this is God's word, that calls you to attention that we're not reading over the literature. And the literature is God, God reading, God inspired. At the end of the reading, the one leading worship will say, this is God's word. And then the congregation responds together, thanks be to God. We're actually going to practice being thankful today. And if it makes you feel weird talking out loud, just be thankful that God's word here is in front of us. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So first of all, verses 1 through 2, and this is just a meditation. This is a little bit uh, abnormal for us to take this amount of time, which is shorter today. We're just going to meditate together. The way the psalmist sets this up, if you knew Hebrew, is that each succeeding line goes to the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Sometimes they would do this in training schools with their young people. It would be a way of, of teaching them the alphabet and grammatical things, but they would put it to poetry, if you will, so they would learn about God along the way. In the first two verses, as the acrostic poem starts, the psalmist says, first of all, praise the Lord. Now, as we begin with that word, some of you were there today. Like on the way to church today, you had like Stephen Hurst chatting and pounding. Very much a little people like me. Some of you had um, somebody more current than that, or strong, or something like that. So you came in today and you're like ready to go, right? Uh, like Matt Redden is still singing in your ears. Um, some of you are not there. Some of you come to today and it's been awful. Mine was mostly. Be just awful. One of the hardest weeks in a long, long time. It ended really well, um, but it was really hard. This was one of those weeks where I quit like five times and went to nothing. I mean, I don't know. But I mean, it was one of those weeks where I just, it was hard. And you come today and, and right off you see this praise the Lord. And you're like, I don't want to praise him because I'm mad at him. Some of you say, I don't want to praise him because I don't trust him anymore. Some of you say, I don't want to praise him because he's not showing up. But we come with a, a host of emotions today. Some of you are like right there. Hey, this is great. Some of you are like, ah, it's not me today. But he's doing this in a corporate sense, this covenant assembly. He says to all of them, praise the Lord. That's, that's why we're here. That's 
why he made us. That's why he's rescuing us in Jesus. To renew us to be accurate image bearers. To be ones who praise the Lord with all that we are. He's not just saying, I praise the Lord when I'm high. He comes to the covenant assembly, no matter where they're coming from, out of the depths of woe or out of the heights of joy. He says to them, praise the Lord. And he goes on. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Every, every fiber of my being, I will give thanks to him and the company of the upright in the congregation. When somebody comes and they says, they say, praise the Lord, or I thank the Lord, and they're, they're high, you can understand it. But for a moment, let's consider, what if the psalmist, when he penned this, was coming from a low And he wasn't saying, join me in my, my joyful, worshipful elation, but he was saying, perhaps, I've been in the lowest of lows, I've been in the mire, the pit of despair, and yet I will praise anyway. I will give thanks anyway. And if you find yourself in that latter category today, that's hard, isn't it? If you are a person who struggles with depression, it seems to come in unexpected ways, sometimes uncontrollable and sometimes seemingly crushing. I have tinges of that sometimes the last thing I want to do is praise and thank you. We don't know who wrote this song. David wrote so many of the songs. David is such a good example for us because he comes to God in his joy and in his despair. No matter how you come today, you are called along with me as part of God's covenant assembly to praise and give thanks with everything that we are despite our circumstances. Verse 2, in so many ways, is the most important part of the psalm, at least for us. Notice that the psalmist says, Great are the works of the Lord, and this is the real key part, studied by all who delight in them. In your moments of great joy and elation, knowing that all good that you have comes from God keeps you humble, keeps you from being self-confident. In your moments of deep woe, knowing God's works, knowing them really well, pondering them, and, and knowing them as the first thoughts that come to your mind when you rise in the morning and sustain you throughout the day, and before you lay your head in your pillow at night, the works of the Lord are in there, that they're churning in the machinery of your pondering and of your thinking, that even in the moments of deep woe, you know that you can give thanks, and you know that he will carry you anyway. But notice that if you're not the kind of person who takes effort in studying these things, how will you know? How will you maintain humility in your moments of great victory if you are not careful to remember the one who actually gave you the victory? Conversely, how will you stain the the depths of woe that are in your soul? How will you move forward if you are not grounded in the reality that God always takes care of his people? He always has historically, and he always has for you. How will you make it? You see, when it really comes down to it, 
You may call me a legalist for saying this, but I think that's pretty ridiculous. There is a direct correlation between how deeply you know God's word and how little you know. But be careful. Joy and happiness are not synonyms. In other words, you can find a person that's happy, and they might not actually be very joyful. They may just be nuts. On the other hand, you might find a person that's not very happy at all, and yet we would say that they possess an undying joy. See, joy and happiness are not synonyms, which means that you can actually be quite sad. And therefore, you can be quite sad, and you can trust, and you can give praise, and you can give thanks. So I'm saying to you in many ways, the second line of verse 2 is the key to all of this. You have to know God's word. And that is not legalistic. I'm not telling you when to read your Bible. I'm not telling you how much to read your Bible. You just have to. You have to know it. And it's not just to be an academic exercise. In other words, you're not just to know all 39 books of the Old Testament in order. You're not just to be the kind of person that, like, if there's ever a Bible category in Jeopardy, then you can answer all the questions and know all the questions. You are to be the kind of person that fundamentally embraces the fact that God's work is a record of his redemptive love. It's not primarily a list of obligations. It's primarily a list of all that he has done on behalf of his covenant. So when the covenant assembly comes together, they can praise and give thanks no matter what emotions they bring to the table. I recognize that it's so very difficult to be consistently full of praise and be consistently full of thanks. But see, that's what God's word does. God's, words, God's word helps create within us a heart of gratitude. Why? Well, that's what verse 3 through 9 are really all about. We won't take time to pick this apart in great detail, but let's just go over some of these matters. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. This means that everything he does, he does in beauty, he does with purpose, and he does it with deliberate care. Nothing ever occurs. You ever like go through your day, you're driving down the road somewhere, and you zone out a little bit, and all of a sudden you remember something you're supposed to do? That's never happened to us. You ever get like a surprising text or email from a friend and they tell you something you didn't know? Shock a little bit. It's never happened to us. God has not only full knowledge of all that has happened, he controls all that happens. That means that when things are going well for us, he's doing that. He's doing that. But what about when things are not going well for us? Voluntarily, physically, emotionally, occupationally, relationally. He's controlling those moments. You see, all of God's work is full of splendor and majesty, and his righteousness never stops. 
God is relentless in bringing his works about for the good of those he loves. This is another reason I don't mind getting older. I'm not that old yet, but I can't do some of the things that I used to do. I hurt more now when I do certain things than I used to. But you know what? I don't want to go back. I have two boys. My older son came out of the womb carrying the weight of the Lord on his shoulders. Um, that's why I love when I actually hear him laugh for real. Whenever Jack really laughs, it's really great because he's just so serious all the time. I think the best version of Jack is like down to earth. It's really nice. But right now, he, he struggles because he's worrying about things and he thinks about things that normal kids just really don't think about. My younger son's not like that at all. Um, very little gets him down. Christianity outright, who are just and honest and nice, 
They would never cheat on their taxes. They would never strike their children. They take their wives on dates. They even give money to charity. Those things don't make you a Christian. A Christian who is a person is a person who has given himself over to the fact that he has no righteousness of his own, but God alone is righteous and gracious, and he pours it out on all those who will trust him. And Jesus is the perfect example of that. If Israel could praise, if Israel could trust and be a thankful people, if Israel was called to study the works of the Lord and to delight in them, and that this would sustain them in the periods of great joy and the periods of great despair, how much more us? about to celebrate this time of year again, in which we find that God did not abandon us, but in the person of his Son, he proved himself to be gracious and merciful. And we remember, we remember. He provides food for those who fear him. Not good. Not just salvation, but tangibly what you need. When's the last time you went for a sustained period of hunger other than like true for us. It's all we need. We have more than we need. Why does God do that? Why does he give you food? Not just salvation, but food. Why? Because he remembers his covenant, first of all. Because he loves you. He gives you what you need. It's hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? Isn't that, though, what Jesus was saying when he said, if your son asked you for a piece of bread, you definitely wouldn't give him a stone. If he asked you for a fish, you certainly wouldn't give him a serpent or an egg. You wouldn't give him a scorpion. Why? Because you don't want to harm your children. You delight in and giving good things to your children. And what does Jesus say? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven, who loves you, know that how to give good gifts to his children? In fact, in Luke's gospel, he goes further and says, if you know being evil and how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Not just physical food, but the comfort in every period. God will always meet your needs exactly the way you need them. He will never, He will never give you crumbs. He will never give you scraps. He will be abundant. We just sang that song, didn't we? That song is wild. Hard to say enough that something is not. I'm not sure if I should really believe it. The periods of trial bring that into question. And brothers and sisters, I'm right there with you. The past week of my life has to me too, though. I begged God for something that I wanted to happen, but I wasn't sure he'd do it. And if it didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen, it would have brought intense pain to my mind for the moment. He answered my prayer and it happened the way I wanted it. He did it mostly because he wanted to glorify himself, but he did it also because he wanted to bring me joy. That period of several days brought into question what it is I actually worship and what it is I find my rest in. That's life, though, isn't it? But I can't remember God failing me, can I? Think about that. Ask yourself that very simple question. When was the last time God actually failed you? Now, I don't mean that he didn't give you all that you wanted. Wise retrospect. When is the last time he didn't come through? Has there ever been one time in the millennia of human history when God did not come through on behalf of his covenant people? 
adding a thousand. Think about that. You think, well, that, that's too simple. I need something deeper than that. No, you don't. Remember that. God never fails. Verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works. What's too hard for him? This is what we pray, isn't it? Would we pray if we didn't think he was powerful? I think sometimes how we pray if we think, well, that's pretty strong. God's pretty loving. Or God's pretty attentive. No. God's power is endless. And if that's tempered by or in harmony with an endless love, what would withhold from us? How do we know this? Because he gave Israel the inheritance of the nations. He gave them the promised land like he said he would. How much more those of us who have been brought into his family through adoption, through his son, the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers and extension sisters and he gave himself for us and therefore because of that because of our elder brother Jesus we've been brought into the family of God Israel experienced an inheritance that pales in comparison to the inheritance that we already know is coming and one day will come at the end of our teaching time today Mark's going to come and pray a prayer of thanks for future grace our inheritance has been initiated. We have kind of a down payment on it, but it hasn't been fully realized that that's coming. You see, sometimes we trust in what God has already done. Sometimes we trust in what God is doing. But we also have to put great confidence in what's coming. You have an inheritance, but you have not fully realized it. D.A. Carson said something at the conference a couple of weeks ago. He said, I know this is kind of silly, but in 50 billion years, when we're just getting started in eternity, we'll remember that our friend didn't text us back. We'll remember that we had to skip vacation once a month. We'll remember that we lost that one particular job. We'll remember that so and so was sick, he was really sick. Now, I don't mean to trivialize those things, and if you think I did, I'm really saying there's coming a day when the inheritance will be fully realized and we'll look back and all the pain will be wiped away. We know that because God's word, God's word tells us that. No more pain, no more tears, no more frustration, no more mire, no more pit. Total and unending joy. But while we live in this present age, where joy is followed closely on the heels by pain, it does as well to remember. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All of his precepts are trustworthy. Not only are his works trustworthy, but the things that he says in his word. And this is where things get married together. How do we learn about his works? Think about it. Takes it back to verse 2. Studied by all who delight in them. You take great delight in the actual physical words on the page. They're all trustworthy. Not one of them is wrong. Not one of them is false. Not one of them will lead you astray. Not one of them will disappoint you. Everyone. So it should be that as we're growing to our 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and beyond, that not only do we have the ability to look back at life and say, God's batting a thousand never failed me. Took me through some, through some heart-wrenching times. But also, we're growing along the way with a depth of understanding of God. So it's a very deep well. 
we can draw on this. Struggles in marriage, something to draw. Struggles in, in relationships with your children or parenting, something to draw. Struggles with lust, something to draw. Struggles with money, struggles with pain, struggles with frustration, something to draw. But you can't draw on one sermon. You can't draw on one conference you went to. You can't draw on one sustained period of Bible reading. It has to be consistent. Call that legalistic if you will. I'm just telling you. These precepts, verse 7, are further uh, illustrated in verse 8. They are established forever and ever. He says, word will never fail. It's a sure word. We say to people all the time, just trust me. People don't fully trust us, even those who know us really well and love us and know that we have the best interest in them because we're not all powerful. But God's word is undergirded by unbreakable power. And therefore, his word is established forever. Theologians differ over what the end of verse 8 means. Does that mean that because God's precepts never fail, that he wants us to go out and do them? Or does it mean that he always does them? It really can go either way. Let me illustrate how we can first one. Because God's precepts are trustworthy, we should obey them. We shouldn't give up on them because they will lead us down a path of joy. What could mean that? It could mean that God has established his promises and he will actually keep covenant faithfulness to his people. Either way, it's good. In other words, God keeps his word. That's good for us. God calls us to keep his word. That's also good for us. Verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. And he ends with great Holy and awesome. Not 80s innovations. All inspired. Holy and awesome is the name of the one who has redeemed his people and will always keep covenant with us. We speak of God's holiness. Sometimes we think that that's a synonym for sinlessness. It's not really what holiness means. Holiness means that God is unique, different than anyone else around him. Think of the person in your life that you're closest to, who you love the most. It's going to be like a spouse, mostly. For those of you who don't have a spouse, it might be a close friend or a child. Somebody that's close to you. The person probably has a good track record with you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be that close to them. You would abandon them or they you. Even though perhaps they have a pretty good track record, are they perfect? It's interesting that sometimes the people that actually bring us the most joy also bring us the most pain. It's kind of a warp of the loop of human relationships. But this one who backs a thousand and never ever fails people, you realize he keeps covenant with him and he'll never fail you. And like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if he did not withhold his son from us, not graciously give us all things. You see, that's what our God is like. He promised redemption to Adam and Eve back in the garden as soon as the first sin was committed because he already had a plan. He already had it worked out. And despite the rebellion of humans, despite the fact that all humans after Adam and Eve ran away from God, he kept his covenant promises. 
and I have not been brought into the covenant assembly because we are worthwhile or because we will disobey. God has kept covenant with us because that's what he will. Will he take care of your bank account, your children, your marriage, your very life? Assembly, like verses 1 and 2, is to pursue all inspired worship of God and cherish Verse 10 reminds us of verse 2 again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've got to go read about Him. You've got to know Him. And when He does things for you, write them down. If you're the kind of person who forgets, write them down. Go back and read Remember. Sometimes it's good to do that collectively. Public testimonies. In your small groups or with your friends. Tell each other what God has done. Remind your friend, your loved one, of what God has done for them and for you. What the psalmist is saying here is a person who not only respects God and understands how awe-inspiring God is, but a person who trusts God. A person who sees that God is the only worthwhile treasure. That person, that's what the fear of the Lord looks like. That person, that person will be wise. That person will be able to survey the landscape of what's happening to them. And even in the midst of good or bad, they'll have good understanding. And they can praise and thank this God. Anyway. Mother theologians think that Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are companion psalms. To read them together, we won't take time to do that today. I would encourage you perhaps to do that this week. One of the really striking things about Psalm 112 is that in verse 7, the psalmist says, He is not afraid of the righteous <coughs> one who fears the Lord. In the verse 10, or verse 10 of chapter 111, the one who fears the Lord, what's he like? Well, one of the ways that you know, his righteousness shows up is that he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is trusting in the Lord. His heart is free. In the beginning of verse 8, that man's heart is slow. That often is not Person, verse 2 of Psalm 111, who studies these things, who knows these things, who has a deep well from which to draw, no matter what life brings his way or her way. The one who knows that God does all things for his glory and for the good of his children. The one who knows that God backs thousands. The one who knows that God keeps covenant with his people. The one who knows that God alone is to be adored and revered. That is the one who doesn't fear. That is the one who Steady. That is the one who can give praise and give thanks despite the circumstances. Turn with me to go on to Romans chapter 8. I want to end with this before Mark comes. I wonder if when Paul wrote these words down, perhaps he had something like Psalm 111 in mind. I do know that Paul knew the words so well was like the man of Psalm 111, verse 2. But these things form the very fabric of his thinking. It means somewhat easy for him to turn to these truths in the midst of his circumstances. Verse 31, we are well familiar with these verses because we refer to them quite a bit here. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elected? God who justifies it. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? That's the gospel from beginning to end. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, as a member of the covenant assembly, we are called to fear the one that we know, the one we study, the one that we try to plumb the depths of the understanding that we see in his word, the one that we record the things that he's done for us. We want to know him. That grounds our trust. That leads 